Thank you for making the, the decision to, to join to join me for this webinar on how to make a decision. Now, in this webinar, I'm going to only get ahead of myself just a little bit because it's broken down into three parts. The first part is focusing on decision making uh, for the individual. How do we, as individual engineers, technicians, designers, maintainers, artists, uh, trees, tree surgeons, whatever it is we do, how do we make a decision, especially if that decision seems or feels daunting. The second part of this is going to be focusing on how we as an organization can help our employees, our workers, our individuals to make those decisions easier. Uh, so how we can make those decisions easier for those people. So we take some of the stress off our individual decision makers. And the reason we wanna take stress of people who make decisions is because if we uh, remove stress, they are more likely to make the right decision for our organization. The third part is going to be talk, we're going to focus on how we measure our organization's ability to support decision making. So with that little sequence in mind, we're going to start at the very start and focus on what uh, decision making means, especially when it comes to reliability, which is why most of us are here. And the reason why this is very important is because reliability happens at the point of decision. Reliability doesn't happen through testing. It doesn't happen through following standards. It doesn't happen through any other uh, mechanism or artifact or activity outside of a decision, a decision to do something or not do something. And by inference, if we decide to not take reliability seriously, then reliability does not happen. So let's have a look at a very generic life cycle, product life, life cycle that I use a lot in these conversations. And uh, the point here is not try and, and um, teach you about the, the product life cycle or, or an asset life cycle or anything else. I'm confident that you all come from organizations which have your own approach with your own names and that's fantastic. Now, the reason why I've had this here to have this little diagram here is to illustrate how decisions relate to everything it is we do as designers and technicians and engineers. We have decisions made every single step of the way. If we didn't have to make a decision, then there'd be nothing for us to effectively do. We'd already have our design, started our design life cycle, which we clearly don't. We'd already have worked out how to manufacture it um, when we, at the very start of our our life cycle, which we clearly haven't. So we need to make decision after decision about what characteristic, what material we're going to use, what the specifications are, what the tolerance is going to be, what the manufacturing process is going to be, what's an acceptable scrap and rework rate, so on and so forth, en route to an amazing product system or service. Now, many of these decisions are essentially the same but are only separated by when it is we make them. So for example, we could make a decision at the very start of our design life cycle, or we can make a decision at the very end, uh, just before we're about to launch our product system or service. Now this could be essentially uh, an identical decision. Perhaps this decision is all about using a particular form of abrasion, uh, abrasion resistant material to try and mitigate the risk of wear or a risk of some bad event occurring. The problem with the one on the right is that we are making this decision much later in the product life cycle or this generic life cycle. And that comes at a monstrous cost. In fact, this could be so late in the, in the life cycle that we have been forced to make a decision because our customers or users are saying, hey, the thing you made for us keeps failing. And they're forcing us to decide to do something, perhaps even after we've launched our product, which means recalls and all manners of bad press. This is a disaster. So the way we separate these two decisions is by looking at the problems they're trying to solve. Problem number one is a failure event, uh, a, a problem that has been uncovered by our customer. 
And this is the quintessential problem that reliability engineering textbooks tell us to focus on. Reliability is about the probability of failure. And we often have this very blinkered approach to uh, looking at designs or looking at decision-making or uh, reliability engineering more broadly, but it's all about making sure things don't fail in the hands of our customers. It's very hard to argue against that because that makes sense. We're trying to make, trying to make stuff that won't disappoint or otherwise not meet our user or customer expectation. But if we look at it, that the same decision, perhaps to use an abrasive, abrasion resistant material, or we do it at the very start, we're actually solving what the problem that, at least in my, the way I look at it, is uh, I label that problem number five. Problem number one, problem that our customer uncovers. Problem number two is a problem we uncover just before launch. That's a, that's a crisis. Do we launch a substandard product or do we go back and redesign stuff we thought we'd already redesigned well? Problem number three is not as bad as problem number one and two. It's a problem we find at the end of our design life. So problem number four, you know, we don't mind that. Those are problems we un uncover during preliminary tests, halts, for example. Problem number five is a problem that we never allow to occur in the first place. And the reason we never allow that to occur is because we made the decision to address that issue early. So let's look at the typical decisions you can make in, uh, uh, for, as a reliability engineer, or at least relating to reliability throughout the product life cycle. And there's we're going, going to go a few of them, and there's going to be plenty more than the ones I, I touched on today. But here are some very typical ones. Perhaps the first decision we need to make is work out what goals do I need to give my team uh, when it comes to reliability performance? What is good uh, reliability performance versus bad? It's a very nuanced question, very difficult problem to solve sometimes. That's why we need a good decision-making process. Another decision that we make uh, on every step of the smart design or smart manufacturing or smart maintenance process is what do I need to change on my design? Perhaps what do I need to change in my manufacturing process? What do I need to change in my maintenance regime? This is very different uh, to understanding how long it takes your thing to fail. You're trying to focus on the weak points so that if I can if I can uh, work out what it is I need to change, that's where I dedicate my efforts. And those weak points, another way of describing those weak points are the dominant failure mechanisms. How is my thing most likely going to fail? And once you know those vital few dominant failure mechanisms, then you can, as I mentioned the previous point, you can really focus your efforts on the things that matter, and not the trivial thousands. Another decision we need to make is can I proceed to the next step. Have I met my incremental milestone uh, performance requirements? Have, can I smash this design review gate? Are we otherwise happy, for example, to launch or move to manufacturing? Can I proceed to the next step? Another key decision we make along the journey. Another thing that you might have to do if you're a leader of a team or the design, design team, uh, managing the entire design team efforts is Ask yourself on a daily, daily basis, what will I do? Or what should I do to help my team? What do they need to uh, get their reliability performance over, over the line? What can I do as their boss to assist them in making an amazing product system or service? Another very specific uh, decision or question we need to answer is what tests and tolerances do I need for my product system or service? What clearance do I need? Will the epoxy uh, a, prop, um, a, prop, a bond strongly enough between that and sorry within that clearance, for example. Another one we're going to look at later on in this webinar is what part of our business case needs to change. This is a huge consideration. We should have an idea about how our product system or service is going to make us money or provide us a capability that might us might allow us to launch tons of missions or achieve military objectives. Based on the reliability performance of my thing, what part of my business case, what part of my operating model, what part of my entire supporting infrastructure needs to change to best support this thing with the reliability performance characteristics it has. Now we start moving on to manufacturing and production. What activities 
or parameters needing to change, what sort of what sort of defects are going to cause my thing to fail? So what do my manufacturing team need to focus on above all others? What contingencies do I need to change? It's all well and good having uh, assuming things are going to work, but we know that uh, failure is always an option, as they say on Mythbusters. So what contingencies do I need to change? And if those contingencies are uh, too expensive or too costly, what sort of fail-safe mechanisms do I need to incorporate into my product system or service to, to limit the amount of or amount or size and what contingencies I need to have ready to go at all times? What sustainment and maintenance activities and schedules should we change? The big one is preventive maintenance. We often uh, insert a product system or service into the field, into a use or into operational uh, conditions. And we anoint it with the servicing interval of 100 somethings. I never touch that number ever again. The reality is we don't have a good handle on how our thing's going to degrade over time. Even, uh, even if we think we've done a good, good job of studying it during that development. And the reason being is our customers and users will always use our things in ways that make sense to them and not ways that make sense to our use case. So we should always be trying to optimize our service intervals. Another question we need to answer is what do we need to do next time? We are not going to be a one trick pony. We're not going to have this one product uh, in it, uh, launched from it in our company or from our company. And that's gonna be the only product we have from here on, here on in. We need to continually adapt. We need to make a better product next year because our competitors are gonna do that. So what do I need to do next time? Information is money. So if we're able to answer these questions during this year's model, we are saving tons of money in the future. And no doubt there are plenty others. So question for you guys, what sort of decisions or questions do you think I have missed in regard to the reliability engineering continuum? What sort of typical uh, dis uh, design uh, decisions, for example, are going to be influenced by reliability stuff. It can be very vague, it can be very, uh, maybe even abstract. Are there any other sorts of questions that you might need reliability engineering support to answer? Anyone brave enough to hazard a guess? Or maybe you've got a very specific interpretation of one of the questions I just raised. Now, one of the many things that I can, uh, one of the things I can interpret from a, uh, from a wall of silence is that I have absolutely nailed the webinar so far, but I'm sure there's one or two, there are one or two things out there that perhaps I have missed. Let's see if anyone has any any input before we move on, or perhaps it is the case that I am absolutely killing it so far. Or I can't see anyone brave enough to suggest anything, or I am that good. So let's move on. So there are tons of different questions that uh, we need to answer along the product life cycle that um, in many cases are related to reliability engineering. And a lot of these decisions are overwhelming. So what do you do if you feel overwhelmed when you make a decision? So let's just think about decisions in, in slightly greater detail. We make decisions almost every second of every day. We decide to walk over there. We decide to do something. Uh, we, we decide to have a hot dog instead of pizza for lunch. We, we decide to go out as, a, as opposed to staying in. We are constantly making decisions. Everything about us, our behaviors are essentially a series of decisions. And that's all well and good when you're going to make, going to make simple decisions day, day in or day out. But sometimes we get some really big decisions and have some really big questions we need to answer. And it can be a, it can be a, uh, we can sometimes get so overwhelmed that that decision making process that human beings are really, really good at can simply shut down under this wall of awful. So if you do feel overwhelmed at any start, any point, especially when it comes to reliability engineering, 
it, uh, the, what I suggest you do is break down your decision. And there are some key steps in decision-making that if you follow, you should hopefully arrive at a really well thought out answer in a very short amount of time. So decision-making has eight key steps. And we're going to go through each of these steps in detail. A lot of the time for reliability stuff, people skip over the first three steps. Now, Fred I, has talked about, or talked about this metric called the MTBF a lot, mean time between failure. And that's a classic example of skipping over the three steps. The MTBF is a terrible metric for most reliability performance considerations. You can't use the mean time between failure, for example, to calculate how many things you expect to fail during the warranty period if you're designing a brand new wireless modem router. Uh, but we often see the MTBF used almost exclusively as some sort of measure of reliability. And that happens when people rush through the decision-making process, don't focus on what matters, and they very quickly arrive at the wrong metric. And what that usually means is that the performance they were hoping to achieve in terms of what matters to the organization bears little relationship, has little, uh, as, uh, that's not the right word, has very little to do with the metric you thought was going to matter. So let's go through this decision-making process in very fine detail. We'll start with step number one, identifying the decision of, or the objectives of the thing you are trying to solve, the problem that you have been handed, what is the, the solution that you're tasked with coming up with, what are the objectives of that solution? What does success look like? A very quick question you should always, always ask yourself uh, after you've decided that you need to do something is, am I interested in improving reliability or am I interested in measuring reliability? They're very, very, very different. So if you're trying to meet, if you're trying to work out what do I need to do to meet my next milestone, Perhaps, perhaps the answer to that question is all but is going to be based on improving reliability. If you're trying to work out if you reach that milestone, perhaps your, uh, your answer to the question is all about measuring reliability. So if your customers are unhappy with reliability, what is it that you need to do? Do you need to measure it or do you need to improve it? Some people are going to try and measure, measure reliability. That might, might be the right thing if you're trying to uh, demonstrate to your customer that you've met the requirement they've set out to you. Or if you're in an organization which is trying to stay ahead of the pack, and is always trying to be um, seen as an industry leader, perhaps that, industry, that organization is going to always respond to customer issues and customer complaints. So they're not going to try and validate whether the customer has an issue or not. They're going to perhaps improve the design regardless. So, so before we go on the decision-making process, but before we're trying to solve a problem, before we go and do testing or anything else, we need to understand the, object, the objectives of our decision. So let's go quickly back to those 11 uh, generic uh, questions that uh, good decision-making process is going to answer within the scope of reliability engineering. Let's focus on one of these. Specifically, what should our warranty period be for our brand new thing we're building or designing? Your boss comes up to you and says, what should the warranty period be? And you need to go and help your boss make the decision in regard to the optimal warranty period. So what do we need to do? What's the next step? Next step is once we understood the decision, once we understand that we're all about the warranty period, trying to find the optimal warranty period, well, we need to know what matters. What does a, what makes an optimal warranty period? So if, if we don't think about this strongly enough or deeply enough, that's where you rush to the incorrect metric. Perhaps we rush to the MTBF. And we know the MTBF tells you virtually nothing about warranty, uh, warranty reliability, which is potentially going to be a key input. Uh, perhaps you need to understand in the case of warranty period, what the optimal warranty period should be. You need to understand how much it costs 
for you to address each warranty failure. You might then work out what the profit margins are going to be. How much money can you, can you spend on warranty costs? And what drives warranty costs? Warranty reliability, not MTVF. So really work on what matters. What is going to be very important to this decision? Then the next step when working out what matters is to really think about MOEs, measures of effectiveness. Now, this is what your company, your organization uses to measure success. Even if they don't call MOEs, uh, if they, even if they don't call that an MOE, they have these. And in many cases, in many cases, it's going to be something like long-term profitability or uh, number of missions launched with a few more details on what that means. But what is it that matters to your organization the most? And once you think about that, once you study that in greater detail, then you shouldn't be able, able to identify things like fleet availability or product, productivity or yield or just minimizing costs. But you can work out which one of which ones of these things uh, drive or relate to what your company uh, thinks success is. And once you do that, that's where metrics become very apparent. So how does work reliability fit into that? So we go into, a, remember, we go back to our warranty period uh, question and our bosses putting on our shoulders, what should the optimal warranty period be? Well, we don't want the MTBF when we go through this process, when we realize what our boss is asking us, what should the warranty period be for us to maximize value, for us to be able to uh, create something that most cust more customers we want to purchase or not. We want to make sure our warranty period is as long as possible to make it competitive, but we want to make sure that it's not too long that we incur costs uh, through warranty repair that destroy our profit margin. And so once you really understand what your boss is really asking, then the metrics become very, very obvious once you go through that process. Okay, so we've gone through that step of identifying what matters. Then what are the options you have? Now, if your boss asks you, what should the warranty period be? Um, are you in the business of redesign or maintenance or manufacture or asset changes, for example? Uh, if you, is your boss asking you to work out what the next, what if we had to invest $1,000 in fixing something in our, as part of our design, what should that be? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's, an, it's a secondary task. Once you work out what your options are, uh, then uh, you should be able to work, you should be able to then set yourself up success for the next part of your decision-making process. So question for you guys. Given that the question we're trying to answer here is what should our optimal warranty period be? What are some of the options for the potential answers for that question? Anyone have any suggestions about what I could potentially write down as options for that potential answer. Be generic. Are customers interested in warranty periods that are expressed in terms of, for example, two years, three months, and 17 days? Is that a good warranty period? Is that an option that we can feasibly uh, use uh, to, to uh, provide feedback to our boss? Or do we need to be a little bit more simple? What's wrong with me saying, hey boss, the optimal warranty period should be two years, three months and 17 days. What's wrong with that? Keep it simple, yep. Think about it from the customer's perspective. What is the customer expecting in terms of warranty periods these days? I know you guys have bought stuff over the years, so I know you guys have been exposed to plenty of warranty periods. I'll just keep going on from what Sean's suggesting. And we just, we just know that customers, like Sean says it suggested, they want it simple. So we know that if we have warranty periods that are going to be less than a year, we typically express 
those winding periods in terms of months, perhaps even days if they're going, going to go 90 days. But once it's over a year, we typically go up in yearly increments. Now, for whatever reason, that's just what markets these days work around. You don't have um, monthly um, uh, warranty periods. Even those, month, even those warranty periods, which are longer than one year, expressed in months, tend to be 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, 48 months, tend to be year, yearly increments. So we know that our options are limited to full years if we're over one year or full months if we're less than one year. So that might be part of our part of the options that we have, uh, one of the options we have available to us is yearly increments in terms of the warranty period. But of course, it'd be remiss of us to, uh, to not pass on to the boss any ideas for redesign, manufacture, uh, maintenance uh, regimes or perhaps asset management frameworks if during our uh, decision-making process we identify useful information that might help them in different fields. So we identify options. Now, we've completed the first three steps. And once we do that, then and only then do we start gathering information. And once we've done those three steps, we should be really focused on what sort of information we need to get. Now, a lot of reliability engineers go straight to test, which is awful. We should be considering any sort of information source we have available to us. If we are designing a new uh, consumer product, which has barely any changes from last year's product, perhaps it's just got a, a, uh, an aesthetic upgrade, then we know that we have a ton of useful field data from last year's model to inform the decision this year. We, don't, we shouldn't test this year's model if we can look at the design and understand that it is, uh, from a configuration perspective, very, very similar. Of course, testing might be the only option you have, but testing is expensive. If you have information at hand, use that information because that information is free. But this conversation is not about trying to, trying to help you work out whether you should do testing versus getting information from an existing source. Just the point being is once you've completed the first three steps of decision-making, helping uh, you identifying which ones of these information sources matters the most should be a lot more, a lot simpler. So we go through gathering information for our decision. Now that decision could be, uh, so that, that information in this case, warranty period, needs to be something along the lines of identifying help, whatever information we need to be able to identify the reliability curve of our new product. Because we've gone through the first three steps, we might know that, for example, we can only tolerate 5% failures in our warranty period. Our profit margins are projected to be 10% for each sale. We, uh, we uh, make 15% profit on each sale. And so we can only lose a certain amount of money through warranty repairs if we're going to hit our profit projections. So we perhaps might know that we need to find that period where we expect reliability to be 95%, where it's only a 5% chance our thing has failed. And so that means we need to gather information that helps us create that reliability curve. And once we've done that, we then should be able to easily evaluate options. For every year, we can create a reliability curve. We can plot uh, what the reliability is in that curve for every year, one year, two years, three years, four two years, three years, four years, so on and so forth, and work out which of those warranty period options is as close as possible to, uh, sorry, give us a reliability, which is as close as possible to 95%. Now, this is often where we get problems because if we've done step two correctly, then step five is simple. So, but if we don't uh, work out what uh, matters in step two, then what happens in step five is we have a bias and emotional arguments. How many times have we all been on in our conference rooms or boardrooms and people have, we've got to make a decision and people are throwing information, testing this, opinions that, and it turns into a very adversarial climate where it's essentially up to the loudest person in the room who has the biases which are most tolerable and they tend to be the guy or girl who gets their way. If we focus on step two, when the time comes, if we define very clearly what matters, if it's warranty reliability, if we've worked out that we need to have warranty reliability of no less than 
then we take the biases, biases and emotions out of uh, evaluating each option. So that's why it's very crucial to go through those first three steps, especially when it comes to reliability, because there is a tendency where there's always some element of chance, as well as the gambling industry, for people to downplay risk for short-term gain. And after you've done that well, choosing the option becomes simple. But we're not done yet, because after step number six, we have execution. Execution is where a lot of really good decision-making processes fall down, because sometimes your organisation is not serious about doing reliability. They want you to go and do the research and do all the testing because they confuse that effort with outcomes. The problem is, if we don't execute, then we don't actually have any benefit from all this decision-making activity we went through, which means all our expensive testing or information gathering might uh, becomes a waste of time. But let's just say our organisation does this. They take your advice and you say, hey, the warranty period needs to be three years and here's why. Then we never rest in our laurels. We never assume we know that we need to review. As a rule, with reliability performance, we have large number, a large amount of uncertainty in many scenarios. And obviously we go at our best guess, we shouldn't presume that we nail the answer from in, in, uh, at our first attempt, particularly if our thing hasn't been fielded yet. And uh, once we make that decision using best available information, if we make, if we make the rational decision based on best available information, it might be still the right decision, but it might need to be reviewed or updated because the best available information was not complete. So that's a very important last step of our eight-step decision-making process. So if you are ever struggling with reliability decision-making, break it down into these eight steps. Focus, spend a lot of time on steps one, two, three, especially number two, defining what matters. You often jump straight over that one and land on the metric we feel most comfortable with or the metric that's been used uh, the, the metric that's always been used, so we're not going to go against the grain or whatever reason, uh, or sorry, whatever metric that our organisational culture sort of forces us to accept. If we don't take the time to work out what matters for this decision, then you're going to make the wrong decision. So there's reliability decisions and then there's reliability decision making. We just went through reliability decisions. We've talked about decision-making. But before we go on to the next bit, which is all about culture, are there any questions? Is there any more feedback? Is there any feedback or any stories or any inputs that any of you guys have on the decision-making process we have just looked at? Well, allow me to get a drink as well. Any, any questions, any useful tips, any... Uh, any stories about decisions going awry or being made very, uh, being done very well in your experience sets. Okay, it doesn't appear to be a lot coming through on that one. Eight steps of decision making. Now, we talked about that, that decision as if we are the person and the only person who's responsible for that decision. And the reality is we're not. Even if we're told we're responsible for that decision, we are part of a bigger organization which has its own culture. And that culture, uh, by definition, is uh, some sort of characteristic, some sort of description of our collective decision-making. Culture is defined as organizational behaviors. And behaviors is nothing behaviors are nothing more than a set or a sequence of, of decisions we make on a daily basis. Do we do the right thing or do we cut corners or do we follow this strategy or do we follow that strategy? Every behavior is essentially the manifestation of decision. So culture describes organizational-wide organization -wide behaviors or organization-wide organization uh, decisions that we all make as members of that organization. So let's go back to our decision-making process, our eight steps. What can we do as a boss or leader of an organization to help the decision-making process? 
Now, to be clear, you might not be the leader in terms of the CEO or the director, but you could be the leader with respect to reliability engineering. You could be the reliability guy or girl in this organization, and you need to help uh, the reliability culture by making decision-making easier for these engineers, designers, technicians, and maintainers whose day job is to not be a reliability engineer. So what can we do if we're leading an organization or a function of that organization to positively uh, affect organizational decision-making? Well, let's go back to step one. One of the best things you can do is to get a process have a guidebook, have a handbook which says at this point of the product development life cycle, you need to think about or do this. And of course, we don't want process for process's sake. We want process to be incorporated in a way that helps. We've all been subjected to uh, what feels like miles of checklists. We've all been told we need to compile a standard X, Y, Z. And I'm not talking about those sort of processes. I'm talking about a process which is tailored to your particular product system or service, what your organization is trying to achieve, and most importantly, tailored to the people who work in that organization. So that's one of the first things we can do to help the decision-making process. The second thing we can do is make sure that personal and organizational goals align. There's no reason why each engineer has to derive uh, a statement of organizational success every time they make a decision. Successful organizations have clear visions, have clear missions. They clearly articulate what value means that organization, what that organization is trying to achieve, what success looks like. And by communicating that on an almost daily basis, that means that decision makers know or should have a better idea of what matters in order to achieve those things that represent organizational success. And that also means that we're more able to, for example, appraise performance. If there's no performance, if the reliability is not related to individual performance, we often see organizations almost exclusively focus on schedule and budget, which means that corners are cut or short-term gain at long-term expense. And that's a very, very vicious cycle to get out of. So we need to make sure that personal organizational goals align. We don't want to make people have to do a full business or operating mode analysis every time they work out, uh, every time they need to decide if we're going to use a wing nut versus a torque uh, versus a hexagonal nut. Now for these steps over here, identifying options, gathering information, evaluating options, this is where we train our people. So if you're a reliability engineer, and they need to gather information, which could be through, for example, time to failure analysis. They might need to know how to do viable probability plotting. If you're the reliability engineer who's in charge of all reliability stuff, and you know that from your processes that these, these guys will need to do probability plotting, then you need to train them. Give them the confidence that they, will, they can go and do probability plotting and make good calls as a result. That's just one example. It could be, uh, it could be them understanding how to do derating if that's important for your product. Again, that should be part of the process. So we train people to follow the process, which, make, which makes them more likely to do it. So that's another step, another thing we can do to make sure that we have, um, we have uh, people following said process. Of course, if we have to gather information, then we can set up uh, databases and information gathering systems, computerized maintenance management systems, databases, spreadsheets, or just perhaps even uh, a framework where we label files uh, correctly. If we have this discipline, we have these processes and frameworks um, baked into our organization from day one, it means it's that much easier for me or anybody else to look through that hard drive and identify the information that we've been accumulating for years. So and again, that comes back to the processes we need to follow, working out what the likely information uh, requirements will be, which comes from knowing what decisions we're going to, we're not likely going to be forced to make. When it comes to execution, does the leadership motivate people to do the right thing? Very big one. It's all well and good having people trying to do stuff. But if you are going to essentially 
uh, erode what your what people's perception of your personal performance is by doing reliability stuff, then this is never going to happen. If through this through the process that you as a reliability engineer comes up with, you identify you need to do, for example, halt testing. But halt testing, for whatever reason, is expensive, at least in your organization, typically not, but let's just say that is seen as, a, as an expense which is uh, ideally avoided, then of course, those engineers, those design team leads who avoid, that, who avoid those expenses will potentially get a better performance appraisal at the end of the year, which means that you are personally penalized for doing good reliability engineering stuff. So does our leadership team understand what our reliability strategy is and do they motivate people to make the right decision on a daily basis? So that's one of the, one of the other things we can do as a leader to make sure this decision-making process happens. It all comes down to culture, the collective behaviors of our organization. So we talk, at the start of this webinar, talked about two parts, or three parts, I should say. First part was how you, as an individual, make a decision, eight steps of decision-making. We then started talking about what you, as a leader or a boss, or let's just say an influencer, can do to help your organization make better decisions. We talked about processes and training and things like that. That's the second part. We're about to move on to the third part of this webinar, I'll talk about how we can measure culture from the perspective of reliability. Before I do that, I'm going to uh, see if there's anyone out there with any questions, anyone has any comment, or just anything that anyone out there would like to share. Now's, a, now's your time to do it before we move on to part number three. Man, I drink a lot of water during these webinars. One question, cool, from Marco. I assume that Marco is typing as we speak. What's your advice on how to properly manage decision loops? Okay, so that's a big question. Um, and people might have different interpretations of what managing is. And I would suggest that um, some of the things we talked about in part number two, where we have that process, where we have a clear description of vision in our organization, which defines what success might be, uh, where we have people trained to implement all the things that we have laid out in that process. Those are very important, um, let's call it foundational activities to uh, influence the decision-making loop. I can, oh, sorry, I can see some more information coming through. Marco writes that several time, several time we waste time tuning a decision and then we enter in a loop that seems like a never ending story. Can you just clarify that? Uh, if you don't mind, are you saying we waste time tuning a decision and then we enter a, a loop and this thing is like a never ending story? Might need a bit more advice on that one, on what you're trying to get at. I'm assuming you're typing again, Marco, but while you're doing that, I will say that one of the best things you can do to manage a decision-making loop is always come back to the decision, especially when Marco talks about never-ending loop. Well, most decisions have a shelf life. It's all well and good to say we need to work out what the reliability of this thing is. Um, so, okay, we need to do reliability demonstration tests. And, okay, so how long is reliability demonstration tests need to last? four years okay well we need to launch in two years so we we need to have some constraints on our decision our decision is all about supporting organizational value i've seen many times where reliability engineers essentially say hey 
If we want to do reliability demonstration testing, and their interpretation is, for example, has to be, uh, we use our product in, in real life uh, conditions, so on and so forth. But that means that uh, that, that whole decision-making process will be a waste of time. I recall uh, a couple of organizations where we had quality assurance guys, and they were adamant that if you can't test it, then you can't specify it. And what that meant was that uh, for the medical device company they were part of, is that they were saying that we can't specify reliability requirements beyond one year. So we can't say, for example, there is a warranty reliability goal uh, for a warranty period that might be four, five, six, seven, ten years. And the reason I was saying that is because we can't test it the way they would have liked us to test it. They were be, they essentially became irrelevant because they weren't focusing on what the, the decision was supposed to support. The decision was supposed to support uh, those MOEs, which are in this case profit associated with this, these lines of medical devices. And because customers were all about warranty periods that exceeded one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years, um, if we weren't talking about reliability in that time frame, then we weren't going to create a profitable medical device. Uh, so those, again, those quality assurance guys were almost insisting that we make a decision uh, using this, these constraints that I'm most comfortable with and they became irrelevant. So reliability died in that, in that product line because they were the only guys there who were championing reliability, but they were doing it in such an incoherent, inconsistent way, where if we implemented what they were requiring us to do, we would not ever make a profit. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about, Marco, but one piece of advice is to always come back to the decision. And the objectives of that decision all usually come with some sort of shelf life. We need to make this decision by this point in time. If that's the case, can we test? Yes or no? No. Okay, so we need to do simulation, analysis, interpret existing data, all sorts of other really useful reliability engineering stuff. But um, we don't uh, situate the tool. So we don't choose the tool first. We focus on the decision first. Anyway, if that comes anywhere close to what you're talking about, Marco, let me know. And if not, I'll have another go if you can clarify that question. All right, so part number three, how do we measure culture as it relates to reliability in our organization? And this is, uh, if some of you have been to my previous webinars, it's, this is going to be revision because it's a fantastic little, uh, little excerpt from some real life scenarios where organizations have done a really good job of measuring their culture as they progress through reliability improvement initiatives. Okay, so coming back. So one of the things you can do if you want to measure the culture of the organization you're part of, or any other organization for that matter, is, is uh, use what we call a design for reliability survey. And the DFR survey, Fred was the person who introduced this concept to me um, a very, very long time ago. We won't get too specific on how many decades that was. But you create a DFR survey, which is focusing on the tools, uh, activities and tools matter for your organization or your industry. You include ownership and accountability. And when you, when you create these uh, criteria, and we're going to go through, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, we, you then have a very structured approach to trying to assess snippets of how your organization works. So for example, you might have as one of these criteria, folks um, in the management team, do they come up with really good design goals, reliability goals? For the design team, do they have a handbook or a process? What's the state of the handbook or the process? Do they use testing? You might come up with various criteria, these various questions, which uh, give some measure of how mature your organization is when it comes to reliability. Now, I'm not going to go through in great detail how to construct the FR server because there's plenty of resources on ascendoreliability.com to help you. But the idea is that you can tailor set of questions or a set of criteria which matter to your organization 
and matter to an interpretation of reliability maturity as it applies to your organization. So once you have this survey, you might have, let's just say 30 or 40 questions or criteria. Does the manufacturing team do this? Do we know how much unreliability costs? Do we know, uh, uh, does, do we do things like Vermeers, yes or no? Do we have, how do we treat our suppliers? Do we have, uh, is, it, is our relationship with our suppliers trust and partnership versus adversary and, and legal, legal fights? You, once you come up with all these criteria, then you're going to ask 10 people in your organization, you're going to interview 10 people in your organization about these criteria and they should be drawn from a wide range of functions. We don't just focus on the same team. By definition, that's a waste of time. We want to have uh, management representatives. We want to have marketing. We want to have uh, the accounting guys. The accounting guys are really important because they're the ones who often, who are often the only ones who know how much uh, reliability costs the organization. We want to have a design rep, obviously. We want to have a manufacturing rep, electrical rep, mechanical rep. Pick 10 guys or girls who represent a good cross-section of the organizational program and you sit down and you talk to them. You say, okay, tell me about this. And you listen to what they say. And for each person, you give them a score, usually from zero to four, zero being non-existent or terrible, four being exceptional or amazing. And you keep going through each of these criteria. And after you've spoken to 10 people, you should be able to come up with some very good average scores for each criteria or each question for, for across the entire organization. And when you do, you're able to really track how your, your organization is improving with respect to this thing called reliability maturity. And the example I'm going to use is Hewlett Packard, who did this over a 10 year period, um, which occurred during this program they call the 10X Pro Project, I should say. And the idea was that uh, over this 10-year project, 10-year project, I should say, not uh, program, they were constantly reviewing how their culture was improving. Now, don't forget, Hewlett-Packard is a huge organization. I think it has 36 divisions, and each division uh, is manufacturing a vast range of different products. Some of them are computer-based, some of them are nuclear power plant-based, some of them are a printer base, very different divisions, which could be companies in their own right. So they had a ton of data to assess how their culture improved. And when they did that, they were able to not only look at how culture improved, they were able to look at how culture, how their scores of culture are related to things that mattered. For example, warranty as it expresses a percentage per year. They were able to find that all as the reliability maturity increased based on their DFR surveys, warranty uh, expresses a percentage uh, failure per year was going down, which is fantastic. But even that's not what we're here to, here to achieve. We're here to make money and generate profit. Well, the funny thing is, is that when they compared the DFR survey scores with operating profit, this is the trend they found. And as the scores got ever approached 100%, as, our, as their organizations, as these divisions became more and more mature, operating profit was approaching 20%, in some cases exceeding it. All the same, throughout this process, they were, they were realizing all sorts of second order benefits. And so this just goes to show how you can have a, such a tangible link between culture and decision-making processes, which is, uh, sorry, organizational performance. So this 10X project, what they were trying to achieve during these 10 years of they conducting these DFR surveys was a tenfold reduction in warranty failure rates. So essentially the percentage of things failing during the warranty period, that was a 10X project. And as they were measuring their cultural performance throughout these 10 years across 36 divisions, they were able to take snapshots on their journey towards 10%, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a tenfold reduction. Now they didn't quite get there, but it was still an outrageous, outrageous, outrageous success. And they're able to also do lots of other cool things like work out how much money they save in terms of warranty. So for example, the red line here represents how much warranty costs they would have incurred if they didn't improve their failure rate. And the difference between that red line and the actual warranty costs 
is about $808 million. And this is all because their culture was improving. They were empowering the decision makers. The leaders were putting processes in place to make that decision making easier for the engineers, designers, and technicians every step of the way. That's where uh, reliability starts to happen with, without uh, relying on, on uh, let's just say, witch doctors or relying on processes or buzzwords where you empower people to make the right decision every step, every step of the way, you tend to get amazing results. So they obviously save $808 million in terms of warranty costs. They reduce production time in some cases by 30%. But in some cases, they reduce the cost of maintenance by 35%. The inventory uh, savings were $200 million four years into the project. So who knows uh, how many billions of dollars they ultimately save in terms of warehousing. They're actually able to reduce, in some cases, recommended retail price by up to 16%. And the reason why is because production times were being reduced because this reliability improvement drive was also eliminating those problems that we uncover uh, during production. And I'm not casting mind back to the very start of this lesson when I talked about problem number one versus problem number five. Reliability engineering, when done well, is all about preventing problems. Not only problems for your customer, but problems that you uncover during production which blow out your budget and your schedule. So if you are making decisions early in the, in the product life cycle, perhaps when it's not fashionable to be thinking about failure, you prevent problems and you reduce production time by 30%. You reduce maintenance by 35%. You're able to reduce the recommended retail price by 16%. You're able to increase profit to the extent that profit margin exceeds 20%. You, you slash warranty costs, you slash warehousing, you save tons of money and tons of time through what a lot of people think are second order benefits of reliability engineering, but in many cases could be the reason why reliability matters the most to us. So what are you guys writing for? Very cool question. I know I'm just being very uh, adversarial when I say that. And hopefully you get the rhetorical nature of that point. Decision-making decision -making is uh, most valuable when you make that decision early. You can make the same decision 10 years later and it costs you millions or billions of dollars. But if you make that decision before you start your first design, then your first design is a reliable design. Without even knowing it, you've saved yourself hundreds of millions of dollars potentially in a very expensive uh, product recall, or perhaps paying a fine because your thing is causing untold death and catastrophe. All those decisions that we bring forward in the product life cycle to make as early as possible, save us money. And when we do that, we become valuable as reliability engineers. And it comes back to decision making. So if we can remove the stress from the decision making process, we are more likely to make decisions earlier. And when we do that, we yield, we, sorry, we reap these benefits. We are able to reduce production time, reduce production costs, drop recommended retail prices, reduce our time to market. All those wonderful things that we associate with boring production life cycles where there are no crises we need to, we need to address every other day. It's not a good feeling when you get pulled into someone's office and say, hey, we've had found one more issue with that hydraulic pump that you designed last year. And then you have to address it somehow. That's a terrible feeling. If we're able to bring that decision-making process, which has been forced upon you because another complaint has been thrown at your hydraulic pump and bring it, for, bring it back to last year when you could have done something about it as part of your design process, that's where you save money. So, if you, so we need to become more comfortable with making good decisions as early as possible. So from an individual level, break down the decision-making process into eight steps, focus on what matters, and gather the information that you need to, uh, to understand what matters. Follow those eight steps, decision-making becomes a lot easier. If you're involved in, in an organization, you can make that decision-making process easier for all those individuals by coming up with processes understanding or clearly articulating what success at an organization looks like and understand or disseminate how reliability supports that definition, definition of success. And those processes we come up with 
make sure people are trained to do them. Make sure that process is not onerous. Make sure it focuses on the vital few things you need to focus on. And once you've got those vital few things, make people experts. They don't feel uncomfortable or scared about doing it. Or perhaps you need to be the one who does it for them. Who knows what the best way of making it or assisting that decision-making process might be in, in your organization. And the last bit, last part of this webinar was focusing on how we can potentially measure ongoing cultural improvement as it relates to good reliability engineering decision-making. We saw an example where Hewlett Packard was able to track uh, its reliability maturity based on that DFR survey. And all that DFR survey did was measure culture. And culture is a set of organizational behaviors. And behavior is a series of decisions. So it always comes back to decisions and decision-making. So I believe we are coming up to the hour. I'm gonna open it up to anyone to open up for anyone to ask any questions, make any comments, provide feedback, or if you want to decide you've got something better to do, then have at it. So if you, want, if you do decide you've got something better, better to do, then how about that? I'm happy I seem to have answered your question, Marco. And if I didn't, please feel free to rephrase and I'll have to go.